ig.org, where you will find several speaker feeds with over 800 speaker files, forms for ordering CDs for these speakers, and a place to donate to keep this special service active. The opinions expressed on the Light a Candle podcast are those of individual OA members and do not represent OA as a whole. I would now like to introduce our speaker for tonight, Andrea. Thank you, Andrea, compulsive overeater. Um, I wanted to thank Lucy for inviting me to be here tonight. I'm really happy to be at a meeting of Overeaters Anonymous and to take a five-year candle. That means a lot to me. My uh, abstinence date is May 3rd. 2016, and it's not my first abstinence date. I have relapse in my story, and I will get to that a little bit later on. But just to get some numbers out of the way, I um, I started coming around to OA, I think in the fall of 2012. I was desperately unhappy. I wanted to not be on this planet anymore. And I I didn't know how much I weighed. I had not weighed myself for a very long time, but I did find a medical report and it said that I weighed 253 pounds. So that was what I used as my top weight. Although I know that I probably tipped the scales much higher uh, because during that year of 2012, I had I lost my dad. So I was eating through that entire year, you know, and um, I know that I had stopped wearing women's clothing. I was shopping at the men's big and tall store and I was wearing a size triple XL, <laughs> big baggy shirt and leggings. And that was my, my daily uniform. But I would like to share a little bit about how I got to OA and how I got to over 253 pounds and what it looked like for me. Um, when I think back, as far as I can remember to um, my earliest memory, my earliest memory is one of fear. I remember very distinctly um, being a toddler. I probably was one and a half, two years old. I think I was learning how to walk because I remember I was hanging on to the side of a sofa and I remember looking across the room and I just thought, I can't, this is too much. I don't want to. I remember those thoughts or that feeling because that is a feeling and a thought that has followed me most of my life. It's too much, I can't, I quit. I was a big runner most of my life. If things didn't go the way I thought they should, I was out of there. If people didn't treat me the way I thought they should, I was out of there. I, I was the type of person, but I didn't even necessarily run away from you. I retreated inward. I was the type of person to give you silent scorn. I was the type of person to show up and not talk to anyone. I was the type of person to just retreat and, and, and stay silent. So, you know, I grew up in a lot of chaos. Um, my family was, um, <laughs> my family was, it looked very normal from the outside, but on the inside, there was a lot of, you know, things going on that shouldn't have been going on. And there were strange people living in our home and there were guns around and there were you know, people making bullets. And I later found out like my, my mom worked in a clothing store and she was um, a sales girl and my dad sold skateboards and roller skates. This was like you know, the early seventies. And I, um, I found out later that my dad was also a salesman of a different type. And so he, his career ended with a high speed chase and things being tossed out of a window. So, you know, I just remember a lot of fear, a lot of secrets, a lot of me just kind of knowing that I shouldn't be talking to anybody about what was going on at my home, you know? So I was, I was definitely, like, I noticed that thinking, my thinking was very, um, it was very, I, I would say I, I qualified at a very young age. I just had this kind of, my perception was off. I, I didn't, um, 
I didn't feel comfortable wherever I was. I remember being a very tightly wound little kid. I was very nervous, extremely anxious. I was extremely, um, I would call myself, I was like tragically insecure. Like I was insecure about everything that had to do with me. I was too tall. I was too skinny. At the time I was very skinny. Um, I actually like didn't eat when I was a little kid. And uh, the kids used to make fun of me and call me like um, daddy long legs or spaghetti arms and legs because I was very thin. All I ate was sugar. You know, that was my, my drug of choice at the time. And so, you know, I just always felt uncomfortable about everything that had to do with me, my voice, the way I looked, the way I talked. Uh, and I was constantly worried about what the other kids were thinking about me. And I had that thing that, you know, we call mind reading where I knew what you were thinking about me just by the expression on your face, you know, and I knew it was never, it wasn't anything good. It was always something terrible, you know? So my solution was to retreat inward. You know, I became a loner at a very young age. Um, I didn't have access to all the food or other things that I later found that helped me with those feelings. So I, my first kind of escape was into fantasy land and to, into books. You know, I was an avid reader and I would take this little book with me everywhere. And I would take my books to school and I would sit apart from the other kids. And I would be reading my book during lunch, during like nutrition. And I remember very um, clearly having these thoughts. I would be sitting on the school bench, you know, apart from all the other kids. And I would be looking at them playing handball or whatever. And I would be having a resentment against them for not inviting me to play with them. However, I'm the one that pulled myself away from them. I'm the one that has a book in front of my face saying, stay away. But I was angry with them because I wasn't you know, part of, and I never felt a part of. And I, what I couldn't see at the time, what I didn't have the language for was you know, that self-centered fear. And I was actually the one pushing them away. And I didn't know it you know, at that time. That was the best I could do. And so in my fantasy world, I remember even before I saw Willy Wonka's Chocolate Factory, I had this imaginary world where everything was made out of candy. <laughs> and I remember I would look around my home and I would imagine what candy would make a certain thing, you know, or I would look outside and I would look at, at roof tiles and I would think like those would be Pez and I would look at, you know, columns and those would be licorice, you know, and I had all, everything would be like a candy. And so that was my fantasy. I used to always look at everything and imagine what type of candy that would be if it was chocolate or, you know, whatever it was. And that was um, very entertaining for me. And like I said, I, I was very thin early on. I didn't start to put on weight until right before puberty, but I had the, um, I had the ism, you know, I was, um, I was, I remember stealing money from my parents. Um, they had this large kind of uh, water bottle filled with, with coins and uh, a lot of pennies, quarters, different things. And I was very sneaky. I would go in there and I would dump it out and I would take all the quarters and then I would sprinkle a couple of the quarters back on top so they wouldn't know that I had stolen their money. And I would go to the local little mini mart and buy the candy that I needed, you know? And that was, that was the way I operated. It wasn't until I was a little older, my mother had a very active like dating life. So I was, I was kind of a, a latchkey kid as I grew up. I spent a lot of time alone and she dated and she went to school full time and she worked full time. So I was alone a lot. And what I would do to um, kind of soothe myself is I would come home and I would turn on the television and I would make food and I would eat. You know, that's how I comforted myself. That was, that was actually, it just seemed normal. That was what I did. But you know, what I would also later realize when I did my inventories is that that wasn't the only time I was eating. So I would eat at school. I would eat after school with my friends as we were walking home. I would go home and prepare a meal and eat. 
And then when my mom would come home from work, I would go out to dinner with her and have a dinner. So, you know, the compulsive eating and the large portion started really early on. And uh, I remember one of my mother's boyfriends used to bring me a gallon of a mint and chip ice cream when he would come to take my mom out for a date. <laughs> and he was my favorite one. You know, I loved that guy. And so I just remember like sitting home while they were out and I would be sitting in front of the television with a spoon eating this gallon of ice cream, you know? And I don't think it's any surprise that later on ice cream was one of my binge foods. You know, that was one of the things that I turned to. But around 11 or 12, I started to put on weight and uh, I, I got, I think I didn't really know about fats and all of those things, you know? So when I turned 11 or 12, I started baking on my own. I would make cookies and cakes and things like that. And so I started to put on weight and I, I got a little plump. And I remember that was not okay with my mother. She was very much like, um, um, appearances were very important to her. So having a, a chunky daughter was not okay. So I remember her taking me to the doctor and um, he put me on um, amphetamines at age like 12 or 13. So I was taking this speed and of course I had no appetite. I lost a lot of weight. And around this time, you know, the boys started to notice me and I, I started to, um, I started to come out of my shell a little bit. I also discovered alcohol and all of those things. And my life started to change and I, I started to feel like everything was good. And for a while, you know, my food was um, managed, it was managed artificially, you know, with, with speed, but, and I would also do a lot of exercising, you know, I would jog, I would not eat, and then I would jog, and, and I had this uh, desire to be a model when I was a teenager. So when I was, um, I, I went around some agencies, and I actually went to France, to Paris, and I signed with a modeling agency there. And one of the things that was really, um, difficult for me was the weight, you know, like my weight would swing at this time. And I remember I would go into the agency and they would say, you need to lose two kilos by tomorrow and we don't care how you do it. So my solution was to go to the park and run for five hours, you know, and not have dinner. And then I would go in the next day and they would weigh me and I had lost the weight, you know, <laughs> it's a miracle. And I, I found a lot of outside issues. I was doing a lot of things to try to control and manage my weight. And I couldn't do it, you know, because I'm the type of person, I didn't really understand that I had this allergy to my alcoholic foods. And, and let me tell you what my, my food plan, my, my abstinence today is um, snack from eating my alcoholic foods, which today are sugar, white flour, <laughs> cheese, chips, and lookalike desserts. And some of those things were added on more recently because I, my weight had started creeping up, you know, during the pandemic. And I just uh, got to the point where I knew that, um, you know, I couldn't eat them like a lady. So, um, so my weight, you know, I still used food as a solution. I didn't know that I was doing that, but, you know, I would diet, diet, diet. And I also discovered, I tried every diet that you could imagine. You know, I did everything that I read about in magazines. I had liposuction like three times. I had um, every trainer that you can imagine. I did everything that I could think of to control and manage my weight and still, I could not do it, you know, I would, I would fast, I would not eat any food for 30 days. And then after I stopped fasting, I would start binging, you know, and all the weight would come back on. So initially I had this swing of about 20 pounds, 30 pounds, but when you're trying to land jobs as a model, that was not okay, you know? And I remember I had a big job. I was actually booked for a job for Dolce & Gabbana and I was supposed to fly to Egypt for this, this job. And I was so excited about it. It was like my first big gig. And I did the first fitting and everything was good. And then I think two weeks later, I went there for the final fitting and I couldn't fit into the clothes. 
I had gained maybe like 20 pounds in two weeks and I was fired from that job. They didn't take me. And my modeling agency actually decided they were just launching a plus size modeling <laughs> uh, agency and uh, they, they moved me into their plus size modeling part of the agency. And I was so offended, you know, and I was ashamed and I was embarrassed. I didn't tell any of my friends that I was now a plus size model. And I think I weighed, you know, for the plus size, I was like 145 pounds, 150 pounds. And I, I felt huge. And one thing that was a good consolation is that I was actually making a lot of money. I was doing really well. I was doing a lot of catalog work. They were flying me all over the place, but it was still this kind of secret shame. I wanted to be doing the other type of high fashion modeling, not catalog work, you know? So my disease really took over and my other things started to take over. The drinking started to take over. And I actually, you know, I, I couldn't show up for my job anymore. I was missing too many appointments. I was oversleeping. I was not showing up. I mean, I had to pay. There were times where I couldn't wake up for my flight. And so I missed the flight for a job. And then I had to pay like $20,000 for this, everybody's flights and the studio and the missed work, you know, I had to repay that. And eventually my modeling agency fired me and I was just there kind of partying and going to clubs. And, and then I came back to LA and you know, my, my eating took a different turn. Like once I, once I got home, I was uh, really fully into, you know, doing a lot of other things, you know, um, drinking and drugs and, and eating. And initially, you know, the, the weight was like swinging 20 to 30 pounds. Now it was swinging 80 pounds. And I remember having this boyfriend who met me when I was thin and then I put on the weight and I remember him looking at me and he said to me, you know, you're about twice the size as when I met you. And, um, you know, that's just the way I, my eating was. And I, I didn't know what was wrong with me. I knew something was wrong with me, but I didn't know what it was. I'd been to every diet clinic that I could think of. You know, I did all the Weight Watchers and the Lindoras and the Jenny Craigs and nothing worked for me. And at one point I just gave up trying, you know, I just kind of surrendered to like, this is my life. And I put on another like hundred pounds. And that's when I, um, I really hit my bottom. I was, um, I was at this place where I was, I, I just kind of surrendered to, eating and drinking and not really wanting to be alive anymore. I did end up getting sober in the beverage program. And um, by the time I um, had about three years, you know, my weight was really, um, was really high and I had stopped drinking, but I was now eating with like abandon. And, you know, I did the type of things where I, and I had so much shame about my eating. I remember my, my sponsor, you know, I, I got to the point where my eating was so out of control and I was binging so much that, that I felt like I might drink again. So I told her about it, you know, that I, that I felt like I might drink because I'm so out of control with my food. And so she suggested that I come to OA and, you know, um, and she said something to me and she said, it's really interesting. She said, we've shared everything. You shared your fifth step with me, but you know, the one thing that you never talk about is your weight and your food. You've never talked to me about it. And that was my shame. Like I didn't want people to know the way I was eating, the type of eating that I was doing. And I'm a low bottom like eater. Like I will eat out of the garbage. I, I will, um, you know, I'll eat anything and I will, I'm the lick your plate kind of person and I've done it, you know? <laughs> and uh, so, you know, I was binging and I was going to the grocery store and I, but I was also a big liar. You know, I, I was so ashamed. I didn't want people to know what I was eating. So I would go to the grocery store and I would buy the sheet cake and the chips and the dips and the, you know, the whatever it was, ice cream. 
and I would have to tell the cashier that it was a party that I was having for my nieces, you know, or I would go to the fast food places and I would go to multiple fast food places. I would go like to McDonald's and Taco Bell and um, Burger King or whatever it was, but I would have to hide the bags from the cashier, you know, like I didn't want them to know that I had been to another place when I was, you know, getting my new bag of food to take home. So I had a lot of shame about the way I was living my life, the way I was eating. And I was also starting to get a lot of health consequences besides the weight. I was, um, I was a pre-diabetic. My doctor wanted to put me on medication. I had high blood pressure. I had some thyroid issues. I had some knee issues. I remember there's a meeting that I go to on Wednesday nights and I would park in a church parking lot across the street and I could barely get to my car. There's a little bit of a hill. And just getting like up that hill, walking up that hill, I was huffing and puffing. I had no, I felt like I was a thousand years old. You know, I was tired all the time and I just had, I had no reason to live. And I remember, I remember thinking because I was, I was sober in another program and a lot of my classmates seemed to be doing well. They seemed to be thriving and their lives were exploding and great things were happening for them. And I was in my home with the phone turned off, my curtains closed and binging my brains out, you know, and I gave myself a hiatal hernia. I don't know if you know what that is, but it's a type of blockage. And um, because I, it's from binging and the large quantities of food that I would eat. And so because of this, I had extreme acid reflux. And so, you know, I was binging my brains out. I was binging until I passed out. And then I was also like throwing up, you know, at night because of this hiatal hernia. And then I was doing it all over again, you know, and I, when I think about it, it just, the insanity of the way I was living my life. Um, I can't even, the pain that I was going through just seemed normal to me at that time, you know? And when I hit my bottom, one of the bottoms that I hit was that I was invited to a pool party. It was summer. I was invited to a pool party and a lot of my friends were going. And I, there was no way I would get into a bathing suit, of course, but I couldn't even imagine myself wearing like a short sleeve t-shirt or, you know, shorts. So I didn't go to this party and I was so upset. And I remember thinking, I was so, I had such self-loathing and the way I used to talk to myself is like, you're a big fat pig. Like I would say terrible things to myself. And I remember saying that to myself. And, and then what I did is I went to the grocery store and I bought a sheet cake and I ate, it was a half a sheet cake and I ate the whole thing. And I remember I started crying while I was eating the sheet cake. And I thought like, I can't believe that you're so upset about how fat you are that you're eating a sheet cake. <laughs> like I, in that moment, I had a moment of clarity, like this is not right. Like you're, you're doing the exact thing that, that you know, is causing you so much pain. So I think I came to OA, I kind of like, you know, went to a couple of meetings. I didn't really want to be a member of OA. You know, it did not seem cool to me. <laughs> I did not like it. I um, did not really want to identify. And so I didn't, you know, so I kind of came in and out a little bit. And then I, I kept eating and I hit a bottom of all bottoms and I had this huge binge. And I remember waking up and wanting to kill myself. And I, um, I got to that point and we call it the turning point, you know, where it's like, I can't imagine my life without the food. And I can't imagine myself living one more day the way I was living. It just was too painful. And so I went to a meeting of my other program and there was somebody there at the meeting that I had watched, you know, he was, he was in my AA program, but he was also in OA and I knew that. And he had lost a hundred pounds in the program. And he just had this light in his eyes. He was very, he was slim. And I, I saw the progression and I saw the changes, the positive changes in his life. And so I went up to him and I said, I really, I can't stop eating. I don't know what to do. 
And he said, why don't you come to a meeting with me of Overeaters Anonymous? And so I went with him to a Sunday morning meeting. It was Serenity Sunday. And, you know, my life really changed that day. I, I was ready to hear the message. Um, there was a woman there that was speaking and I heard recovery in her share. And I went up to her and I asked her to sponsor me right away. And um, she didn't say yes right away. She asked me to do some writing and she asked me to, to, to write about, am I willing to go to any lengths for my recovery? And I was like, you know, initially, like when I had gone in and out of OA meetings, I remember hearing people say that they were abstinent. I remember hearing people say that they, you know, they hadn't had sugar in 20 years. And at first I thought they were lying. I didn't believe that somebody could not eat sugar for 20 years. And then I thought, if it's true, how sad for you, you know, that's gotta be horrible. Like that will never be me. I will never like not eat sugar. And I got into enough pain where I was ready to do whatever anybody asked of me. And, and we call that the gift of, of desperation. I had the gift of desperation where I didn't care what it was, what somebody asked of me, I was doing it, you know? And that was where my journey took off. You know, I started going to a lot of OA meetings. I started to feel better right away. I was working the steps. I started to understand that I had this, you know, uh, I, I had recovery in one program, but I really didn't see how food could be alcoholic to me. And now I know that there's certain foods that I call my alcoholic foods, that when I eat them, I have no control over how much I eat of them. And I, it also triggers a phenomenon of craving and obsession of the mind. And my spiritual malady is that my mind will tell me that that food is the solution. You know, I will want to turn to a substance for relief instead of my higher power. And so I had a lot of work to do. And, you know, in my first year and a half abstinent, I, lost almost a hundred pounds. And I started to think like, I've got this thing and I was doing really well. And, you know, it started slipping away from me. I started to take credit for my abstinence. I started to believe that I was the one keeping myself abstinent with all the things that I was doing, my food plan and my meetings and the work and the service and like all of those things I started to take credit for. And I started to lose my abstinence and it happened really quickly for me. You know, what happened for me is, you know, I was supposed to send my food to my sponsor if I changed it. Like if I was having chicken instead of fish, I was supposed to text her about it. And I started like justifying things in my mind, like, well, it's the same thing, it's a protein. So I started not texting it. And before I knew it, I was binging on sugar-free chocolate and sugar-free ice cream and chips and, you know, and I, I was not sober with my food. And so that's where I started losing my abstinence. And I spent a good like two to three years of just, you know, coming in and out of abstinence. I couldn't really get any traction. And I had to hit another bottom where I just, you know, I, um, I think for me initially it was still a diet, you know, as much as I would say that it wasn't, it was still a diet. I was very motivated by the scale and the number and food and counting calories. And, you know, my abstinence was extremely rigid to where, you know, if I ate anything that, you know, it was not sustainable for me. I had a very rigid abstinence. I had like a hundred things on my abstinence and I couldn't live like that. And so, you know, I kept losing my abstinence and where I had to get to with that is I had to be, I had to be rigorously honest first with myself, you know, that I am a compulsive overeater because I still had these notions that somehow some way I could eat what I wanted to eat and be a normal body weight, you know, and, and my weight today, you know, I've, I've gone up and down and in my current abstinence, I'm maintaining about a 45 pound weight loss. 
and my clothing sizes have gone, you know, I told you the triple XL, I've gone anywhere from like a size four to a size 22. Maybe I, I was shopping at Lane Bryant, you know, so it was a 22, 24, it's like a slash. So I assumed it was a 22, but maybe it was a 24. <laughs> I don't know, but that's my clothing size. And today I'm a 14, size 14, and I'm about five, nine and a half. So, you know, I, I, physical recovery is important to me. I don't believe that I'm at a healthy body weight, which gave me some pause when I was asked to share with you today, because my disease came at me like saying, you don't have recovery. You're not at the weight you want to be. But, you know, what I know today is that I was binging my brains out on a daily basis. I could not not eat. I was killing myself with food and I'm not living like that today. And I didn't do that. That was given to me. My obsession for binging, my obsession for food has been lifted. I don't eat like that today. And I'm really grateful to know that, you know, um, are there things that I could do to tighten up my program? Yes, you know, and I, I believe in being honest. I have, uh, I'm at a certain age, I just turned 50. So there's some hormonal things going on and I cannot eat the same portion sizes that I ate even in early abstinence, you know? And I had not been willing to eat smaller portions and I still battle with that today. It's kind of the final frontier for me. Am I willing to eat less? And my mind would always tell me, well, you used to eat that and you were a smaller weight. Well, that's not true today. So I've really had to get on board with that. And, you know, I mentioned that I added some foods to my abstinence list because I was still playing around with some alcoholic foods. You know, I still wanted to have cheese on my food plan and cheese is not something I can eat like a lady, but I told myself that I could. And you know, that's where we talk about like getting into the ring with our disease, you know, they call it a gorilla sometimes and the gorilla, the disease is always gonna win, you know, because when I start rationalizing, minimizing, justifying why it's okay to eat X, Y, or Z, I've lost, my disease has won. So what I know today is that, you know, I need to be very clear about what, I, what foods are abstinent for me and what's not abstinent. And my food plan changes and, you know, I'm not always the person to weigh and measure my food. I know when I do that, you know, my day is miraculously better. <laughs> you know, I feel a spiritual release when I, when I weigh and measure my food because I don't have to think about it, you know, and when I have food planned out for the day, my disease is not making the decision for me as far as what I'm eating that day, because I'm the type of person that would like to comfort myself when I get home from a hard day at work, you know, so maybe that salad with grilled chicken doesn't sound as sexy as like sushi or something else would, you know? So I have to be really careful about those things. Um, but I have to, I'm not sure how much time I have left. Um, so for today, you know, the way I work my program is, you know, I'm of service. I sponsor women. I am, I go to meetings. I, I call my sponsor, not perfectly. I send my food, not perfectly. <laughs> um, I do my morning routine. I read page 86 to 88. I read my daily readers. I pray. I ask God to keep me abstinent today. And I do that on a daily basis because I know that I can't keep myself abstinent. It's God that's keeping me abstinent. And I, I meditate, not every day, but when I do it, I definitely feel a closer connection to my higher power. And I just want to share some things that have been going on, you know, in the pandemic, I really had to get closer to my higher power this last year and a half almost, you know, I, um, I work in a job where I was an event planner. And on March, you know, 17th, when everything closed down, um, or 16th, I, my job ended, you know, it's like, you know, 
the city was shut down, nobody's having parties. My employer closed down and laid everyone off. And I was kind of faced with, um, I was faced with reality because I had also been living paycheck to paycheck. I didn't really have a big savings. And I was faced with myself, you know, and my, the consequences of my decisions. And, and really, I really got a good look at, at the way I had been living my life. And I, um, I decided to make a lot of changes. You know, I saved money. I paid off my credit card bills, um, all my credit card debt, like during the pandemic. I saved up a small savings. I said, yes, I sent out my resume everywhere. My sponsor told me to say yes to whatever comes my way. So I took a job working at a grocery store. And, you know, it was an amazing place, amazing people, but I did not like what I was doing. And I felt this like, um, I felt this desire to quit my job every single day. And I had to call my sponsor about it. And she would tell me to go there with a good attitude and to show up. And what I've learned in program is that, you know, first of all, I don't quit a job until I have another job. So I was actively looking for another job, but I also had to show up and be of service and have a good attitude. And so I did that. I did that to the best of my ability on a daily basis. And I had to be reminded that God is my employer and God is going to put me where I can be of maximum service to him and to my fellows. And so I, I would show up, you know, I'd go to lunch. I'd not want to go back to work, but I'd go back to work. And I did this on a day in and day out for a few months. And what happened just recently is that I got a call back from my old job that my boss has reopened the company and I'm going back to doing my event planning. And I just started that on Tuesday this, this week. <laughs> yeah. So I'm, I'm back to doing what I love and what I feel I'm good at. And I gave my two week notice to, to the, the job that I had. And what was amazing to me is that all of the management came to me individually and thanked me for my work. Each one of them said that I had this amazing work ethic and I was an example to the other employees. One of them told me that I was a beacon of light, you know, and that uh, they, they, they were gonna miss me. They wanted me to stay there. And each one of them told me that I had my job back. If I ever wanted to come back, that I had a job there. And what I know is that that is not me. <laughs> That's not Andrea. Left to my own devices, I would have run away so quickly from that job. I would have quit. I would have left for lunch and never gone back. It's because of program and it's because of, because of strong sponsorship that I was able to show up on a daily basis for that job. And I completely credit that. And I, I believe it was a spiritual experience for me. It was learning to trust that God has a plan for me and I don't need to know what it is. You know, I just have to keep showing up. And that's the way I've gotten through most things in my life. You know, it's when it gets really complicated, when I make it really complicated, let's say that, you know, and then my feelings get really big, I have to break it down to like, what's the next right action? What is right in front of me? And that helps me get through my days. And a day at a time, I now have five years abstinent. And I'm so grateful for that. And I think, are we, where are we with time? Do we have 10 minutes? We have 10 minutes. All right, I'm gonna go ahead and open it up for questions. And I thank you for the 12-step the call. Thank you, Andrea. So it is now time for questions. If you have a question, you can raise your hand in the reaction section. Um, I see one hand up. So Joylene, would you like to ask your question? Hi, thanks Andrea for your share. Um, my question to you is how do you maintain your abstinence today? Refrain from binging and maintain portion control. Thank you. Thank you, Joylene, that's a good question. I do it a day at a time with God's help. You know, it's um, 
what I've learned today is that I, I make my plan, you know, for the day as far as what I'm eating. Um, but I have the type of mind where it never looks like enough food. You know, whenever I put something on my plate, I my mind, whether it's a small portion or a large portion, it never looks like enough. And usually when I'm halfway through my meal, again, the thought comes to me, it's not enough, you're gonna be hungry. And I have this extreme fear of being hungry. And my sponsor has told me, you know, you get, this is lunch, you have a dinner, you know, three hours from now, you're not gonna starve to death. But my mind feels like I will starve to death and it feels like survival, like I need more food. So many times I have to pray during my meal, before my meal and during meal, my meal and sometimes after my meal, you know, please God, let this be enough food. But I do feel like it's important to, to maintain my abstinence. You know, during stressful times, I still have the brain of a compulsive overeater. My mind still tells me that cookie dough is gonna be the solution to my problem, you know? And when that happens, first of all, I know that it's just a thought, it's not a command. You know, when I have that compulsion to overeat, I have now, because I have some time abstinence, abstinent, I have a pause. I can pause. I don't have to react to the first thought, you know, and I can bring God into the situation. And when I bring God into it, you know, maybe it doesn't happen immediately, but the, the cravings will pass, the thoughts will pass. And I've been able to maintain my abstinence a day at a time with God's help. Thank you. Okay, Steve, you're up next. Thanks, Andrea, very much. It was a great share, thank you. Question just, what does your typical day look like morning, noon, and night? What do you do in the morning and throughout the day and then at night? What do you do, please? Thank you. Sure. As far as my program, I I have, I take sponsee calls, you know, three days a week, Monday, Wednesday, Friday. So I, I prepare for those. I, I try to do my spiritual reading before the calls. And on other days, I have more time. I um, I have daily readers that I read. I read, you know, for today. I read some other ones from my other program. I like to, um, I try to meditate. I'm not really a meditator. I have to say, I still find that to be difficult for me. So I use guided meditations or sometimes I will just set my phone on the timer for three minutes, you know, and if that's as good as I can do, I do that. But I also take time throughout the day to, to connect with my higher power. I also say like, you know, I'm the type of person I mentioned before where I, I I have that thought, like, I can't do this, it's too much. Many, many times I wake up with that feeling, like, I can't do this day, it's too much, I don't want to get out of bed. Even now, at five years abstinent and 12 years sober, I get that thought. And so many times I have to connect with God right in my bed when I open my eyes, because my ego is already there. Um, some people say my ego brings me coffee in the morning. Like, my ego, I feel like it's already working on me before I even open my eyes. And it's telling me that it's going to be a terrible day, and I should just not even get out of bed. So I have to be quiet and still and connect with my higher power. And a lot of times it starts with gratitude. I think about how grateful I am for what I have today. I thank God for my blessings. And if I, I try to imagine like a white light and I imagine the gratitude washing over my entire body and filling me up. And, you know, for me, it's a miracle that I'm not, like I know that I don't have a top weight. My weight, you know, when I saw 250 to, you know, higher, it's like, I know that I could be 500 pounds. I know that I could be 600 pounds. It's, there's no, there's no limit for me. I don't have that off button with food. So I'm so grateful that today I'm in a healthy body that works, you know, and, um, and that I'm, I have financial security. I have 
family. I have a lot of things. So I, I think about what I'm grateful for in my bed and I try to let that wash over me. And sometimes I get this amazing feeling of just connection and, and light and not always, sometimes I just do it and it's more of a practice, but I try to connect um, when I wake up and then I have my walk them I do all that. I sit down on my sofa and I read my readers. I, I read from the big book before I do anything else. Even before I feed my dog, I pray. And I hit my knees to do that. And, you know, that has kept me in really good stead. I oftentimes, during the day, I'll pause. I used to put a timer on my phone that said, like, God. Uh, try. I used to say, try God. And so sometimes when that timer would go off, I would say a little prayer and I would try to connect throughout the day. Um, and then when I go to sleep at night, I do thank God for a sober and abstinent day and all the blessings. Joanne. Oh, thank you. Joanne, compulsive overeater. Um, Hi, Joanne. I just thought that was a wonderful share and you really helped me. And um, I was just gonna ask you um, about your uh, prayer life and your relationship with your higher power and how you feel like that's sort of evolving for you. Thank you. Thanks, Joanne. That's a great question. My, I feel today that I'm closer to my higher power than I have ever been. And, you know, I, I believe it's struggle that has got me there. <laughs> I hate to say that, but I'm kind of, I kind of feel like a well-seasoned uh, <laughs> woman now. I've been through some things, and most of them probably of my own making. But, you know, I, um, I need God. And I am propped up by program. And I, I've said this before, like, I know that my program life, my sponsor, these, these are things that prop me up so I can function as a human being and God. And I'm okay with that. Like, I'm okay with knowing that I need to rely on my higher power to get through the day. And it has never let me down. <laughs> I had a thought actually the other day, I was thinking, what if God gave me as much time as I got? <laughs> and that was like, I was wondering, like, you know, like, Thankfully, God doesn't keep resentments, you know, as far as I know, God has always been there when I have sought him and immediately, you know, and whenever that happens, whenever I feel like I'm far, I've become far away from my higher power. It's always me that has moved, not God. God is the one constant. And, you know, when I rely on a higher power, I realize that whatever is going on in my life, whether it's good or bad or chaotic, like when I, my reliance is on my higher power and not a, a circumstance or an event for my peace and my serenity, I am in a good place. Like I don't have to have X, Y, or Z to be happy. And I was a very materialistic person most of my life. Like I had this measuring stick, you know, of what success meant, what happiness meant, what I had to have, the relationship, the handbag, the this or that. None of those things seem to ma matter to me today. What matters to me is a spiritual life. And that's what, that's my ideal. And I fall very short from the mark many, many days. But what I believe is that God only cares that I try, you know, that I keep trying. And that's what I do on a daily basis. I keep trying. Okay, time for one more. Andy. Thank you, Andrea. That was terrific. Thank you very much. You know, you said something that interested me, uh, many things. But uh, when I heard you talk about, for a second, dessert lookalike, my ears really picked up. Can you tell me what that is for you? Yes, I can. So I mentioned before that I used to binge on ice cream uh, and also pizzas and many other things. So what 
a lookalike dessert for me means is, you know, a sugar-free item. You know, they have a lot of like uh, things that you can find now that are gluten-free, sugar-free, supposedly healthy, you know, all of these different types of foods that, you know, could, could pass my abstinence test, you know, where you say you're technically abstinent if you have this food, but it's not passing my, the, the test of my disease because it does activate the phenomenon of craving for me. And so I found that I cannot have these types of foods. You know, I, I gave up, you know, any kind of semblance. Like there were little things that I were, was eating, like even like a sugar-free hot chocolate, you know, like things that I thought were, were okay, um, I realized were not serving me well for my, my abstinence because I still was eating things that, that um, activated the phenomenon of craving. So I have to be careful with that. I, I know it's different for everyone but I can't eat lookalike desserts. I can't eat something that's made out of, you know, gluten-free X, Y, or Z or nut flowers or whatever it is. Like I had, I had to let all of that go. That's it. I think 619, 